Welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing together feminism, dinner parties, female friendship and food. I'm Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club which explores feminism and social justice through literature, art, music and food. Each episode I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Kieran Yates. Kieran is a journalist, broadcaster and editor who's been writing about culture, technology and politics for over 10 years. She's written everywhere from The Guardian, Guardian, Vice, The Independent and Beyond, uh, had an acclaimed monthly column at Vice entitled British Values and was nominated for Culture Writer of the Year in 2016. Kieran recently published her debut book about home and the housing crisis titled All the Houses I've Lived In. Thank you so much, Kieran, for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so, which three guests are you inviting over for your dream feminist dinner party? Okay, I am going to invite Alice Walker, mm -hmm. Gia Tolentino and Carrie Bradshaw. Okay. Even though, you know, love her or hate her, I think <laughs> she's an excellent dessert course. So take me through why you chose those three, first, starting with Alice Walker, who is a novelist. Yes. Well, you know, I, I was thinking about the kind of conversations that I have with my friends today. And I think about the conversations that I wish I was having when we think about sort of feminism in our everyday life. And that's everything from the way in which we engage with the internet to sort of literature and literary tradition of writing about women's experiences to you know sort of the wider issues of climate and fast fashion and beauty and you know I think that this this kind of trio of of women really typify a, a kind of period of feminism you know from second wave to the contemporary and then a very specific kind of um, mid 2000s for Carrie and we'll get into that. So <laughs> you know, I think that, yeah, I think that these are the kind of conversations I wish that I could frame from mm. these intergenerational experiences. Um, and yeah, I love them all. But to start with Alice Walker, I mean, I love, I, mean, I love her writing. You know, I've been in deep gratitude to lots of black women novelists, writers and essayists, and that has really formed a lot of the basis of how I've constructed my own politics and thought about myself and certainly thought about feminism as something that is sprawling and intersectional and, and nuanced. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the work of Alice Walker really speaks to the idea of female friendship and power and collectivism but it's you know it's so tender and it's so beautifully written and you know I'm thinking of the color purple but all of her work kind of speaks to these ultimate themes of how we navigate female rage and tenderness and joy mm -hmm. and you know I think that I think that her work is so beautiful for that you know I think about the color purple all the time mm -hmm. not only because of those themes but because of the tenderness with which it is written mm -hmm. Um, and I also, um, I, I mean, you know, I've obviously sort of grew up over that generation where, you know, I studied Gloria Steinem and second wave feminism at length when I was in university. I went to Goldsmiths University in London and, you know, the kind of feminist discourse was really rich and, and really ripe. Um, and, you know, there were lots of copies of like, you know, Ms. Magazine. 
that were part of various archives. And I thought, God, I would just love to speak to Alice Walker about what that experience was like mm -hmm. editing alongside Gloria Steinem in 1973, 1974, in that whole period, because it was so fundamental to the way that I think we think about feminism today. Um, and so fundamental to the way that, you know, they were reporting on culture and writing these essays. But I think for Alice, you know, a, a black woman novelist at that time, raising these issues, you know, being in the same orbit as the Shirley Chisholm's is just so inspiring to me. And I would just love to sit her down with a delicious dinner and say, please take me back to 1975. <laughs> and do you think they would get on as a kind of trio? Uh, no, I think Alice Walker would. <laughs> I think Alice Walker would absolutely hate Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> Um, but I, but I think you know I think she'd probably be fascinated as well with Harry's approach to a hyper capitalistic brand of feminism mm -hmm. you know which is really about you know sort of adorning yourself with brands and you know living a very white upper middle class life which is adjacent to the media elite you know I think she'd be really interested in the way that Carrie was thinking about sex and you know sort of how that conversation I suppose was impacting the cultural imagination mm -hmm. you know Carrie wrote a column in the Daily Star the New York Star sorry and you know that you know, it was really popular at the time because it felt like that was groundbreaking it felt like that I you know sort of single women talking about sex in their 30s and 40s was radical and I think that Alice Walker would be sort of fascinated by that but also I think she would challenge her on the erasure of pretty much the experience of everybody outside being a rich thin white woman mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then and then I think Gia I mean I think Gia you know I chose her because I love her as a cultural critic and an essayist but I think she really bridges the gap you know as a contemporary writer between that historical legacy of Alice Walker's feminism mm -hmm. and the sort of mid-2000s kind of hyper neoliberal feminism of Carrie Bradshaw who probably would have called herself third wave mm -hmm. and you know and Gina kind of and Gia unpacks that a lot in her writing you know when she talks about everything from the sort of you know feminist cyborg face that we have on the internet on Instagram when we use these filters or we use sort of fillers and you know Kim Kardashian aesthetics mm. to you know to, to what it means to be you know a woman in her 30s living in New York today so yeah I think that there would be how do you what would you say spirited debate <laughs> <laughs> I mean you've got three women who are have kind of made their name through writing yeah so do you think that the conversation would kind of ever revolve around writing and journalism or do you think it would be very much a kind of philosophical uh kind of discussion points i think it were i think that you know writing would probably act as a as a medium through which they are absorbing culture mm -hmm. you know the, you know sort of in the way i think of myself as a writer especially kind of as as a journalist well the way i think about myself as a writer full stop is really how am I metabolizing culture? How am I metabolizing the current moment politically and socially? And I think that that's what these writers do. You know, Alice Walker was talking about um, a, an experience of black women that had historically been erased. 
and Carrie was talking about you know what was you know that shift in culture that was happening in you know sort of in New York but really globally as you know sort of the ultimate West and fascination with the capitalist agenda as a means through which women can be free and women can have it all and women can assert themselves is really fascinating and you know she used her columns as a way to say okay this is where we are right now and you might think that some of this is frivolous and it absolutely is <laughs> and I don't think that she's the best writer either but it spoke to a very real moment of change mm. and Gia I think you know I think her work is excellent in in you know sort of using the metric of what it means to be a good writer and by that I mean she she really frames where we are in a very beautiful way and so I think that she you know I think the conversation these three women would have together would say where are we now where have we come from where are we going and how can we really unpack the kind of seemingly frivolous details of you know what it means to desire a Manolo Blahnik or what it means to desire a snapchat filter and really you know create some kind of thoughtful discourse about what it means to be a woman a person who lives on the margins today I think I think you're right in that they wouldn't get on but I think they'd be respectful of each other and I think there'd be a really good amount of discussion coming out of it it's just at first maybe <laughs> there'd be some awkward moments <laughs> I think so but I think you know sometimes you need the likeness of a, of a carry you know to kind of just you know chatter on about you know fashion and the kind of the delight of that and you know I do often think that I suppose in this setting it's nice for someone to bring kind of lightness and you know sort of uh simple joys in a way no I um, and I think that you know I think that it helps balance that's not to say that Alice and Gia are not joyful I think their work is extremely joyful but I think sometimes it might take um you know a, a, a little bit of excavating mm -hmm. definitely um and, and what tunes are going to be on repeat all evening so uh, this is very difficult to curate, isn't it? Because um, <laughs> as a, I mean, as a music journalist, I, you know, I've just, uh, I, I, my house is filled with music all the time. Um, but at the moment I'm listening a lot to the new Summer Walker album. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the tracks on that is called Hard Life. And mm -hmm. it's very beautiful, sort of melodic, soulful R&B. And, you know, the whole song really is talking about the, the sort of pursuit of a softer life you know a pursuit of a life that you know gives us easier more frictionless experiences mm -hmm. and she talks about how these con the coarseness of these contours are felt you know as a black woman but for marginalized women for you know women of color predominantly but you know for women who ask for more they ask for you know, relationships that are supportive, they ask for a frictionless existence, and they're expected to pursue it. But, you know, there are lots of barriers in the way of that, you know, and, and I think that that's a very kind of beautiful way to kind of frame the conversations that we have, which is that, yes, you know, we, we all want to pursue that. And there's an expectation sometimes that, you know, oh, you should, you should try and step into joy. But if the material conditions that surround us are not easy to step into, then it's very difficult to feel soft, mm -hmm. you know, and, and your hardness is always leveled against you as a woman. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, you know, that's all you have to fight. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second song, I think, is um, 
Got to Be Real by Cheryl Lynn. Mm-hmm. I, I love this because it's just, you know, it's, it's so completely uplifting. Um, it's very, you know, it, it, the messaging, you know, kind of relates to what we've been discussing. It's about having real authentic experiences and saying, you know, sometimes I like this, sometimes I like that, but let's just get together and dance it out and really use our body as a site to shake out, you know, trauma and difficulty and and maybe even um, sort of the arguments that might ensue over our dinner party. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there's also a great scene in Sex and the City where um, they play this song at the end of Carrie when she's a, she's a, a model, she's a real person in a, in a fashion show. And the last sequence is her just kind of dancing and, you know, she comes to this realization that, you know, it's okay that you're a real person. And, uh, you know, I think that that's, you know, it's, it's a little bit twee for me, but actually whenever I hear the song, I think, well, yeah, there's a lot of joy in that, uh, that earnest message. And, you know, the, I don't know, the instruction to dance it out, I think is always a welcome one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, because I am very pleased to say, I, managed to see Beyonce live as part of her renaissance oh my god (laughs) 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 honestly my Instagram has been full of Beyonce like show videos and I've I've been consistently jealous for a few weeks now so that's amazing well you know I think that as an author the advice that everybody gives you post-publication is like do something that makes you happy do something that makes you joy do some rest and I thought well there's only one response to that so I went to to see Beyonce um but yeah I you know could have chosen anything from that renaissance album but I chose Heated just because that sort of middle section sing along like rap chorus Mm. it you know it it invites us to to sing along and to join in even if you only know a couple of words and I thought maybe as a kind of final dessert you'll you'll need the kind of like basic euphoria of that kind of dance music and the invitation to join in on a couple of lyrics so yes when in doubt uh, things are going a little bit awry maybe the food isn't great maybe the conversation <laughs> you know has lulled um Beyonce to the rescue yeah I think that's it whenever there's like a lull at a dinner party put some Beyonce on and it will immediately be sorted out <laughs> <laughs> and where's your dream dinner party being held I think it has to be held in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that home is made from the kind of, you know, the community that you build within it, what you can invite inside it mm-hmm. and, you know, the conversations and the laughs that you have. And so, yeah, it can only be, it can only be in my house. And, you know, and I, you know, and I, and I really love how, I mean, I feel this mostly with women, but I'm sure it happens, you know, with lots of, communities and lots of groups but you know I really love when you provide food for people in your house and it extends beyond the eating you know maybe they're helping you prepare beforehand maybe they're helping you do the dishes after and and you're chatting and then maybe you move to a different room and you sit down and you know for me that is you know that the whole kind of temporal experience is like a a long run and people can leave and people can stay and you know I, I hope that you know I can facilitate a space where people can just relax their muscles and and chat to me about what they want to. So what are you serving to your starter? You know, I'm in in an era of my life, right, where I'm trying to uh, think of food that is just easy, easy and convenient. You know, I'm, I'm South Asian. I'm from Punjab on the India side. 
I grew up with, you know, the most incredible Indian food and cooking, which I can do, but also just hours and hours of preparation of like chopping and, you know, preparing and frying and making. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm giving myself permission to say that a dinner party or preparing for a dinner party doesn't have to take four hours. So, <laughs> uh, so I recently uh, got um, a dining for two uh, by Brie Graham uh, cookbook. I'm quite a cookbooky person these days. And so uh, she had this great starter, which is just roasted fennel um, and burrata, where you just like drizzle it with like olive and honey and you just roast it and it comes out delicious so that's going to be starter I think um, is a really kind of underrated vegetable like I understand why people don't like fennel raw but when it's roasted it's the most delicious it's so delicious and it's light and like oh yeah I yeah I love I love it and the sweetness of honey perfect um an aubergine pasta um I love aubergine um but I actually I just saw uh Anthony make this on Queer Eye I mean I feel like he does the least out of anyone on that show oh my god I mean he's <laughs> definitely doing a lot less than Bobby yeah. <laughs> but, but I thought perfect actually Anthony does the bare minimum and, yeah. so can I and, be and he looks great doing it so it's fine <laughs> exactly but yeah there's a yeah there's a very unnecessary shower scene in the new series and I I've seen um, yeah. <laughs> yeah so just like <laughs> onions garlic tomatoes cherry tomatoes aubergine you know basil oregano and done perfect remain delicious um, pasta? yes yes uh oh well I'm trying I'm trying to have brown pasta because everybody tells me that you can't really taste the difference but I think you can taste the difference mm-hmm. um and I, I actually just love like a classic white pasta penne it's my favorite shape what's yours uh oh I think like a farfalle or the the shell one the con con I'm gonna (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's let's not invite hate mail from uh, (laughs) Italians listening (laughs) um and then my favorite dessert of all time sticky toffee pudding and vanilla ice cream simple delicious yeah very British I think Pardon? That homemade? Uh, no, I think it's like what's well, notoriously difficult dessert to make, isn't it? Yeah, I, there's a lot of different steps, isn't there? So no, don't think I'll do that. I think that that will be um, yeah, supermarket. But I think yeah. you know, put them in the oven and they're as delicious. Uh, but I think that that also speaks to the nostalgia of school dinners, um, mm. but maybe slightly elevated. Mm. And you know, and I actually really love those stories of kind of the sort of nostalgia of a specific kind of British food you know because obviously my experience of being in Britain and eating British food was obviously eating lots of Indian food Mm. in my childhood and formative years from home and then you know sort of going to school having school dinners and being like wow mum you had never seen this (laughs) and uh, you know I think that those those early discoveries really stay with you and I think that was one of mine. I think that's a really interesting point about that kind of diasporic exploration of food when you're a child. I went to, um, I don't, I'm, I'm sure you have heard of them, Brown Girls Do It Too, the, the podcast kind of duo. Yes, I know them, yeah. They're brilliant. And they had a, a kind of a live comedy show that I went to with a friend. And um, Poppy was talking about how 
her mum used to make her this I think she's Bangladeshi so this kind of curry mm. um this fish curry that's like super super smelly mm. and she used to be really embarrassed about it and and kind of wouldn't eat it basically and now as an adult she finds it a really comforting thing as well so I think that's kind of it's an interesting point about identity through food and and what you experience as a child and also how you kind of learn about you know Britishness mm. through food as well as a child. Absolutely but also the kind of the, you know the, the class component which underpins every experience that we have um, as people who live in Britain and you know we feel it with the food that we eat as well. So of course because I was you know I was just kind of coming to this idea of like oh yeah I'm sticky toffee pudding for the first time. It wasn't until later in life until I realized that there you know, there, there are class components to the way that people view food, not only because of their price points, but, mm. you know, it, it, what spaces they occupy. Mm. And, you know, and it was interesting because something like a sticky toffee pudding school dinner was maybe seen as, uh, you know, something that would, you know, be more drawn to a working class palette. And it took me a really long time to really recognise how, you know, food was codified and separated in this way. And so, you know, I, th- I think that, obviously there's a lot of conversations now which go a long way to kind of unpack and resist that but you know I'm still reminded of it now and again when I'm in certain spaces and you know and I think that that's that's an interesting point as well because sometimes you feel free of it when you're eating food from a diaspora you know it it just is what it is but then you'll suddenly not only do you have to feel you're made to feel ashamed by that let's say but you also need to feel ashamed because suddenly you have a working class palette before you even understand what that means so what time is your dinner party ending is it going late on into the night or is it kind of ending you know pre-midnight are you going out dancing after what's the plan oh see my fantasy uh dinner party yeah goes late and you know maybe we put some music we move into the living room and we put music on and maybe we have a little dance Mm-hmm. and you know maybe we like drink a couple of bottles of wine mm-hmm. and you know we sort of pass out where we where we are you know on the <laughs> couch on the floor you know I have a, you know I I have a very Indian home and that is full of soft furnishings and soft mm-hmm. things so yeah there's plenty of places should Alice Walker want to sleep on my couch <laughs> <laughs> see I think Carrie would um kind of try and get everyone out and then would fail you know two bottles in and maybe she'd just kind of leave by herself to get yeah out. absolutely she would I mean she would definitely get an uber wouldn't she she yeah. would go <laughs> and you know or she would be like oh I have this very exclusive club that we can go to but maybe yeah. only two of us can go or something yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you guys wouldn't mind you'd be like oh we're actually fine staying here <laughs> yeah I mean I'm ex- I, I'm excited to like you know not wear shoes and lie down and chat all night yeah. I think Carrie will be gagging to put her heels back on. <laughs> um, I mean, I, your dinner party sounds beautiful and interesting and fun. So I've had a wonderful evening. Um, I would love to speak to you a bit more about your book that's just come out and your kind of wider career. So part memoir, part kind of manifesto, all the houses I've ever lived in delves into the difficult realities of navigating a dysfunctional housing system in a country that is obsessed with home ownership, which is kind of an ironic Mm -hmm. attention. Um, And drawing on your experiences of living in 20 different houses by the age of 25, how how do you feel your own personal journey 
taught you about the wider housing crisis that the UK is is facing? Well, you know, I think that this conversation perfectly connects because the book is about trying to make home between the cracks of the historic housing crisis. Mm -hmm. And some of the ways that I've, I've done that, some of the lessons I've learned is exactly how we build home. So it's been about, you know, how I find joy in those little corners of all the different housing stock that I've had to move to because rents have risen or, you know, this, the council estate that I was living on was going to be demolished. You know, and it's really about, okay, what is the music that you bring with you? You know, what are the dances that you bring with you? You know, and and these homes for me now, writing about them in hindsight have been like, oh yes, I remember I remember when I listened to a lot of like, you know, Craig David and Garage there. I remember when I listened to a lot of Fleetwood Mac because I discovered it like in you know, there. I remember when I was listening to a lot of like Limp Biscuit and Placebo mm-hmm. when I was fifteen and I was living there. You know, like all of these sorts of things, you know, it's about like how do you find joy in, you know, in this idea of home, even as it is fleeting and even as it feels like it is something aggressive that is happening to you from this outside, which has this massive bearing on how stable you're allowed to feel. Mm. So the bit is uh, 14 chapters and uh, it's almost like a kind of episodic essays where I speak about a different home that I've lived in and they say something different about the housing crisis so that's everything from what it means to live in temporary accommodation or social housing to you know moving from country to city to student accommodation uh to a car showroom or above snappy snaps and <laughs> <laughs> um, and in the book you you note that kind of housing ownership has become an unattainable dream for many people in the UK mm-hmm. you think that we should kind of put effort towards making it a possible reality or just invest in alternative modes of housing and living? Well, you know, we know that there is a particularity to the British obsession with home ownership, which has its roots in, you know, colonialism and historical ideas of land ownership mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the, the ruling class system, which, you know, which really had a very close connection with home ownership. And this has really continued, you know, at the same rate as our obsession with the class system in this country has continued. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is always going to be, um, well, not always, but I think that that is a very present thing that we hear all the time from, you know, all our political parties about this idea that we should rush to home ownership. And while I think that, sure, we should make that more accessible to everybody, I think you're right that we need to really understand the country that we're living in and we must have to have a much broader perspective when we're talking about housing so of course we need to do house building we need to be building social housing at social rented costs we need to dramatically think about how we allow people to live in private rented accommodation long term and good quality mm-hmm. you know and i think that we do that with rent caps and regulations this idea that you know the idea that people move year on year because the rent rises so high is 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 not normal and it's not sustainable so I think good quality long-term private rents is really where we need to focus and then social housing so that people aren't living in terrible temporary accommodation situations like steel shipping containers like one of the the girls that I interview in the book talks about or you know holiday inns like one of you know one of the ex-residents of Grenfell after the fire was was living in when I spoke to her so yeah I think that that is really where our efforts need to go next Mm. um and I I also think as part of that we really need to you know 
recognize where home homemaking happens you know I come from a family where you know my mum was a single mum for many years and you know she just she made home with music and neck curtains and food and those were lessons that I learned early and I tried to take with me mm-hmm. even as I had to move place to place to place after I graduated. I mean you've had a really varied career in journalism and, and broadcasting how has your experience as a young woman navigating that industry kind of shaped your career? Well, you know, I think it's very difficult because, you know, it is hyper competitive and, and the, you know, the industry at large is still very rooted in ideas of whiteness and hyper education and a very distinct class system. Mm-hmm. And while there have been efforts, you know, to kind of shift that, I think that there is still a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's also things that, you know, I've, I've been had, I've been given opportunities by editors who have made me recognize that I have things to say that only I can say, mm-hmm. that I have a way of viewing the world that, you know, only I can bring, you know, but, and perhaps it's a little bit more sympathy, perhaps it's, you know, a little bit of intergenerational understanding, maybe it's cultural. Mm-hmm. maybe it is about you know the, the lived experience of being a woman so you know we all have stories about home of course we all have stories about the houses that we've lived in but that's a good example to say well you know there are certain things that I can write with more sympathy just because I have experienced them firsthand and that's not to say that people should only write about what they've experienced firsthand but it is saying that sometimes there are details that you can see you know we know as journalists that the skill really is about your ways of seeing and I think, you know, being a young woman navigating the industry enables you to see certain things, mm-hmm. you know, and it enables you to pick up on certain things and everything from, you know, being overlooked by an estate agent or, you know, sort of being patronised and being led to the wardrobe and being told that, oh, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of room for your shoes there, love, you know, or, you know, or like having any, you know, any money conversations kind of being directed at the nearest possible man. Mm-hmm. to the way we the way that we know that landlords discriminate against trans tenants you know single mums tenants of color you know once once you've seen that you can kind of focus more sharply on it and then your reporting I think is more well-rounded mm. I mean what can be done though to kind of diversify the industry to make it more accessible to women of color or those from other marginalized communities in your opinion I think there's a couple of things. I think mentoring is is really important. You know, I think mentoring and sharing knowledge and being very transparent about everything from money to connections to, you know, sharing a pitch template. It's really important. And I think that that is the way that we also build community and that it becomes really important as a woman of colour because it can feel very isolating and, you know building a community that comes with you is really important and I'm really lucky that I've been able to harness that to my, the best of my ability mm. but I also think for me personally you know I, I really look at the the archive of history and I say how have people done this before what can I learn from that you know oh okay what you know what do what am I interested in what do I have access to and you know how can I how can I use that to maybe encourage other people and you know build coalitions and you know I think that that's really important. Thank you so much Kieran for talking to us today. Um, I always ask my guests 
one final question. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you doing on an everyday basis in a small way to become a better feminist, whether that's for yourself or for those around you? Um, well, I, there are a couple of things. Um, one is that I have a baby sister mm -hmm. uh, and she's in her early 20s and I text her pretty much every day and you know she asked me very pointed things that are sometimes about you know politics she's very engaged in climate activism for instance and you know we we have real conversations about well how does this how does this impact those that are most marginalized you know how can we distribute the privilege that we have how can we help how can we think about this using a very intersectional framework mm. and you know the conversations that I have with her every day really helps not that we're doing discourse every day you know sometimes it's literally <laughs> about like do you like the dress I'm wearing and I say yes <laughs> you know but I, but I think that's, that, that's important and as well that kind of support in well, absolutely we it's like you know what can we do to you know sort of move towards a more holistic useful feminism well I think it's about supporting each other I think it's about like being friendly to your neighbors I think it's about stepping into joy ultimately it's about saying there is a lot of joy to be had in empowering women there's a lot of joy to be had in creating coalitions and community and that can be everything from complimenting someone's outfit to like giving someone a smile and recognizing that as much as the work of feminism is about recognizing inequality it's also about saying we can do this joyfully together and that's how we win what a lovely way to end the podcast thank you so much Kieran for joining thank you so much this is really fun